Uh, if you have your Bible, uh, would you open it to Psalm 119, 110, not 119, Psalm 110 this morning. I'm going to be here for a while if we, if we try to make our way through 119 this morning. It's the longest text in the Bible. No, Psalm 110. The Psalms are a collection of poems or songs, well, not or, poems that are songs and prayers, roughly in the middle of your Bible. In fact, some believe Psalm 110 is a bit of a, of a, of a fight song or a hype song for God's people that was written before they went into battle. We don't know that for sure. But some scholars have speculated that. But this morning I want to consider these words and what they have to, what they have to say about the king that we need in the Lord Jesus. It's funny for us, I, I think as Americans, uh, we're born with a rightful aversion to the idea of a monarchy. Um, I think if we were to talk about King Donald or King Joe, we might get nervous. Um, <laughs> rightfully so. But, but even with that, we identify with the observation that John Calvin made some 500 years ago when he said that everyone flatters himself and carries, as it were, a kingdom in his heart. Because as much as we want to say no to, the, to a monarchy, to being ruled by a, a sovereign, we want to be that sovereign. We want to be in charge. We want to rule ourselves. And so I want to consider this text in light of that desire, in terms of our aversion to a monarchy and yet our desire to be in charge ourselves. So I'm going to read for us from Psalm 110 in its entirety. Hear now the word of the Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power, and holy garments from the womb of the morning of the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray as we consider these things together. Father, by your grace and by your mercy, you have spoken. And by your grace and your mercy, you have preserved and sustained your word that even generations and centuries later, we can read these same words and be transformed. And so we pray that this morning. I pray that you would send out your light and your truth. That they would lead us, that they would take us to the place where you are. That we might know you. That we might worship you and that we might be changed. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. Some, some time back, I read an article written by an entrepreneur, someone starting his own business who described starting his own business as, as the act of riding on a lion. Imagine yourself riding on a lion. And what he wrote was this. He said, people look at me, starting my own business, like they look at me if I was riding on a lion. And they think, wow, look at that. You're riding on a lion. That's really cool. You must be brave. You must be smart. You must know how to handle yourself. And he said, he looks at his own situation. He looks internally and he thinks, wow. I'm riding on a lion. How did I get here? Is it good? I hope it doesn't eat me. Because he knows the inside of, of the starting his own business route, and he knows what, it, what, what, it, what it's costing him, and he knows the challenge that's there, and he knows the stress that that piles on him. Other people think, that's awesome, you're doing great, and he thinks, am I going to make it? Because this thing might consume me. My older brother um, 
my older brother has been a, run his own business for about 30 years now. And I remember him telling me when I was much younger that he, one of the things that he learned from starting his own business was that a lot of people do that. They get into business for themselves as a bit of a dream. Because what they think is, I don't want anybody to be in charge. I want to be in charge. I want to rule, rule the show here. And what he learned, what he would say probably the hard way, is that that's not quite how it works. Because when you're working for yourself, you weren't actually working for yourself at all. Because it's on you to satisfy the customer all the time. And everything comes to you. The buck stops with you, so we say. And he says, you're working for everybody all the time. It's on him. We want to be in charge, don't we? And yet, if we're honest, we also have to admit that we don't want to be in charge. We don't want to be the decision makers. We don't want the pressure to have to, to deal with the results and the consequences of our decisions. It could be any new venture for us, whether you're starting a new school, whether you're starting a new job, a new marriage, or running a home. In fact, in the, in the, in the last 12 months of life, um, college administrators and healthcare professionals have talked about the high levels of anxiety and depression and stress that students have felt and that parents have felt in the midst of all of these realities in which we're living. Where it feels like we're in control and yet it feels like we're not in control all at the same time. We want to be in control. And yet when we're honest, it terrifies us to think that we have to be in control. We struggle with making decisions. We're scared as to what might happen because we feel like we're on a higher wire without a net. We long for unity. We long for security that a king can bring us. And yet we don't want to be ruled by anybody. It's with those, those tensions in mind that I want us to look at Psalm 110. Because what it does is it sets before us a picture of the King Jesus as he rules. We see throughout the, the New Testament, when, when Psalm 110 is quoted, it's Jesus saying, this is about me. And it's his followers saying, this is about Jesus. And so that's why I make that jump initially. But where I want you to, where I want to start is, is actually well, looking at the first couple of verses. Because the first thing I want you to hear is that is simply that. That Jesus is described here as the, as the king who is in charge. The king who is reigning above. Verse 1 by itself, if you, if you take a look at it, where it says, um, if I can turn back to verse 1. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make a foot, make your enemies your footstool. This is the source, as I've said, of multiple sermons in the New Testament on the topic of kingship, and it always points to Jesus himself. What you need to know here is that Jesus quotes this verse himself to let us know that it's about him. Where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, David, who's the king, who's the, really the hero of Israel at this point in time and for generations after, he's acknowledging he has a Lord who said, who, that is above him to whom he submits. He's recounting this declaration of the Sovereign Covenant Lord. And, and the declaration is simply this. That this one, this king, this reigning king is the one with authority. David makes the reference to my Lord. He's the king of God's people, and yet there is someone he speaks to as his master. This one the Lord places at his right hand. It's the one which is the place of honor and power. When he says, sit at my right hand, it's, it's, I'm giving you power and authority over all things. The Lord adds to this the scepter, the symbol of his power and authority. And in, in the, the, the command that's given here in these first few verses is to rule in the midst of his enemies. This is the one with authority. Now, if you're hearing this picture, rule, if you hear that phrase, rule in the midst of your enemies, and you're thinking something along these lines, 
Here we find our hero like Captain America behind enemy lines. Is he going to make it? There's probably a 50, better than 50% chance that he's going to make it. That's not what's being pictured here when it says rule in the midst of your enemies. Because what's being pictured for us is that he's in charge. And that he finds himself in charge even in enemy, to enemy territory. He is the one with all authority over all things. He is the one who will rule even in the midst of enemy territory. He is always in charge. But notice what else he's doing. If, if, we, if we continue on in the text, um, look at verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. You see, not only is the reigning king the one with authority, he's the one who's gathering people. He's raising an army. But look at the details of verse 3. Your people will offer themselves freely. So we heard from Exodus this morning, right? As the people gave the free will offerings for the tabernacle. God made the call and he sent it out. And the people, in response, brought their gifts as acts of worship. It's what is being described here is the people are offering not, not, not simply their possessions, but themselves freely and fully to the Lord, to their new king, or to their king. They're clothed as only their king can clothe them with, with holy garments. That last image, the one of um, the dew of your youth will be yours, seems to speak to strength and refreshment being spread out among the people. God is pulling his people to himself to be his. And he is cleaning them up. He is strengthening them. He is declaring that they are his. Jesus is this reigning king. And part of what I want us to know this morning is this. He's the king is in charge even where his enemies are. There is no place in all of creation where Jesus is not in charge. No better, we might even say following the text, especially those places where it seems that he doesn't even see what we're doing, what's happening in our lives. Where we feel surrounded by difficulty and stress and even our enemies. Especially there he's in charge. When children are difficult, when roommates are difficult, when spouses are difficult, when work is difficult, where it seems that, that he is letting things completely run amok and get out of control, the text is telling us he is always in charge, especially in those times and in those places. He has not forgotten you. Everything, every detail of your life is in his hands. But he also wants us to know that he's raising an army, that he's gathering people and he's making them holy. One of the things I find myself needing and longing to tell my students as often as I can is that you are not alone. If you are in Christ, by definition, you are not alone because you are with others, because there are others there with you. It's what he's telling us here. But he's also telling us that your job is not to be perfect in order to be near Jesus. Your job is not to clean yourself up in order to come to Jesus. Jesus says, come to me and I will clean you up. I will care for you. I will give you holy garments. I will strengthen you. I will refresh you. What that means is that we can bring to him all the mess and mud and muck in which we find ourselves and say, I need you to clean me up. I need you to do this. It's what he says he's going to do. He is the one who is, is, is reigning. He is an authority. And he's gathering people to himself. 
read a, an account of uh, Napoleon, um, the, the French military leader, some, some time ago, and I, and I apologize, I don't remember the specific context, but there was at one point where he's sort of negotiating with one of his enemies, and they're, they're having this conversation about, I, I think the enemy's wanting him to surrender. Good luck with that, right, with Napoleon. <laughs> he's, he's after trying to get him to, to subdue Napoleon, and Napoleon's response is this. He says to this other, this other dignitary, you are no soldier, and you do not know what goes on in the mind of a soldier. I was brought up in the field, and a man such as I am does not concern himself much about the lives of a million men. You cannot stop me. I can spend 30,000 men a month. It's pretty strong words from Napoleon. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying, I, I don't care about my, my soldiers. I can spend them left and right. I can spend 30,000 men a month. I can outspend you. He's not talking about money. He's talking about lives of, of his soldiers. That's how arrogant and how confident he was in, what he, in his ability to lead. It doesn't matter what happens to them. I can just keep throwing more at you, more more at you, and I will eventually win. When Jesus says, I'm gathering people, it's not to be expendable. It's not simply to outspend the enemy or, or to gather numbers simply for the sake of having more. And it's what we see next in the text that, that tells us that. Because Jesus is also the very present king. Look, look again with me at verse 4 and notice where he goes. Says this, you, you speak, again, the Lord speaking to Jesus, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You are a priest, he tells him. You represent your people before God and represent God to your people. That's the role of the priest. You are with your people, is, is, is what he's telling you. We, we hear this reference reference to, to Melchizedek, which was, was after Abram, Abram had won a battle in, in, in the early chapters of Genesis. Abram had won a battle and he, and he gave an offering to Melchizedek. And then the rest of the scriptures point back to Melchizedek, in Hebrews as we'll see in a moment in particular, who is the king of righteousness, the king of Salem, which means king of peace. The, the, this, this priestly king that just sort of shows up. And we, we don't know where he came from. And the hint that the New Testament takes on this is that, that just to see Jesus as the eternal one behind this. But what I want you to see before we jump back into that is I want you to see that what he's saying is that Jesus is the past and present king. You see, the New Testament references this verse 1 from this text as, as occurring when Jesus rose from the dead and, the dead and ascended into heaven, Hebrews 1, 3. It tells us that he, that he is there now, even he, and even as he is there, he intercedes for us, Romans 8, 34. Jesus is the priest who is not against his people, not using his people simply to, to cast them aside. But he is present with his people. He is for you who have faith in him. He is for you. He is with you. His work is the foundation of the confidence that you have. But notice where else we again look at verse 4. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. As I said in the book of Hebrews, this, this points to something even greater, where, where we read that Melchizedek is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. He continues a priest forever. It goes on in that same chapter, chapter 7. He's a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent. Jesus is the present king who is not only of the past and the present, but who is unchanging now. He is the one who is unchanging. He is with you, and 
and that won't change. We need that. Because everything about life is changing constantly. And let's be honest, as much as we talk about wanting things to get back to normal, who knows what normal is? We don't know. Like, who knows what normal is going to be next month? I'm still waiting for normal to happen, whatever, whatever this normal thing is. And yet what the text is telling us that Jesus is a priest forever who is unchanging. He will not change. Beloved, Jesus has lived, died, and rose from the dead. We have hope. His work is done. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. You don't sit down until you're done with your work. And He is seated. He is for you now, and this will not change. As much as a, as a mess as life can feel at times, and as much as uncertainty as we face, the promise is there is nothing that happens in your life in which Jesus is not for you in which Jesus is not orchestrating your life, ordering every part of your day and every part of your week and every part of your month and every part of your year so that you might know Him, so that you might be in relationship with Him, so that you might be changed. Now, let's be quick to be honest. Does that mean it will be easy? Absolutely not. Does that mean every question you have will be answered? Absolutely not. Does that mean you, you, you will never feel like you're going crazy? Absolutely not. But he is the one who is unchanging. He invites us to find rest in that. Jesus is the present king. Notice where the, the end of the section of this passage goes then for us. Where we see that Jesus is also the conquering king. That he is the one who is, who is finishing the work against his enemies. The images of the last three verses are strong enough, large, strong enough largely to stand on their own. They appear now to reference the Lord giving victory to the human king. A couple of things to note. First of all, the divine Lord is the one doing these. This is not the work of a human ruler. You know, we look back to verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, said to my Lord. But look at the way this, this psalm ends. The Lord is at your right hand. He will, scatter king, he will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Again, look at verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He's saying this to David, the human king. The Lord is at your right hand. And then as we look at the rest of this, these three verses, 5, 6, and 7, what he's saying is, the Lord will do these things. The Lord will be the one who is acting. This is not the work of a human ruler. The divine ruler, Jesus the conquering king, is the one doing these things. And then again, look at the specifics of these three verses. Shatter kings, execute judgment, filling them with corpses, shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The king will be, will be victorious. He has authority, and this is the outworking of his authority in our lives and in his world. All over the wide earth, it tells us, at the end of 6. Shatter kings, he says in 5. In, in verse... In verse um, Seven, uh, he will drink from the book by the way, therefore he will lift up his head, lifting up, lifting up his head in victory. He will be satisfied, he will conquer, it will be done. Again, there is no question about the results of this. This is what we see throughout, especially the Old Testament. As God has said to his people, I have a land for you, and I will lead you, I will go before you, he tells his people. I will conquer this land for you. All the work that the people do is following behind the lead of the Lord. That's what he's telling us here again. When I was in sixth grade, my elementary school, 
had this tradition that every, every at the end of every school year, the sixth graders who were getting ready to leave to go on to the, to the junior high would play with the parents in a game of basketball. And we, we met in our gym and we sold popcorn and the stands were filled. It was a blast. In my particular sixth grade year, our fifth grade teacher, Mrs. Reeder, who was my fifth, my sixth grade teacher actually, her husband was a semi-pro basketball player. Now, one of the things you have to know, I, I know that I'm taller than a lot of people. I don't play basketball. <laughs> I was in the band. I was in the debate team. I was not. In the, I did not play basketball. So I had, I had no skill to begin with. But I was the tallest kid in my class, and so I had to I had to do the jump ball against Mr. Reeder, who played semi-pro ball. And you know, later in the game, he dunked a basketball, which I could barely touch the net. Um, but I want you to picture me playing basketball with this guy. Like there was no way. Like there was no way I was going to get the jump ball. There was no way I was going to stop him as he got the jump ball and drove the, to the basketball to the for the slam dunk on the first shot of the game, and they annihilated us. Like that's the picture here. Like this isn't even close. What Jesus is, what the text is describing for us. What is describing is complete, utter victory, where there is no question as to who's in charge. There's no question as to who's more powerful. Jesus is the conquering king, is what the psalm is telling us. He's the one who rules over us. What this tells us is that there is a fight. This is the Lord's battle for us. It's not our battle. It's not something for us to conquer ourselves. It's God himself goes before us. Jesus goes before us. The promise is that he will be victorious. That he will win. Again, there's no question. As you battle sin in your heart and in your life, day after day, and you see your loved ones battle sin in their lives, there will come a day when that will be done and sin will not win. There will be a day when, when it will be completely eradicated from your life and from this world. Some of you need to know that this morning without question. I need to know that this morning. Because as often as I want to, as I want to try to be more patient with my kids, I'm often not. And as often as I want to be more understanding with, with the students that I work with, I still get frustrated. And if I'm honest, I, I, get, I feel the same way toward myself as I get frustrated with myself as I see the same pattern and the same sin pop up here and there again and again and again. This is telling us there will one day be victory and it will, there will be no question as to what's happening because Jesus is the conquering king. So what do we do with all this? I want you to know this morning that your call is to your king. Your call is to your king. I don't know if you have watched the, the show The Crown and all, but it tells the story of Queen Elizabeth's reign, beginning with the death of her father, King George IV, or King George VI. And early in the series, King George is speaking to Elizabeth's this new husband, Prince Philip, who's the, the Duke of Edinburgh. And, and this is because King George is still alive. Elizabeth has not been crowned yet. But King George spends... The, the, the end of his day is preparing his daughter and her husband for what will come ahead. And they have this conversation at one point in time when it's just the king and the duke talking. Again, the duke is her husband. And the king says to the duke this. He says, you understand the titles, the dukedom, they're not, they're not the job. She is the job. She is the essence of your duty, loving her, protecting her. Of course, you'll miss your career, but doing this for her, for me, there may be no other, no greater act of patriotism or love. She is the job. Your sovereign is, is your job, is what he's telling her husband. Our call is not first to obedience. Our call is not first to faithfulness. Our call is not first to doing what's right. 
our call first and foremost is to Jesus himself. Because only as we answer the call to Jesus himself can we be changed and learn to live faithfully and learn to live sacrificial and learn to love God and love neighbor as we, as, as we love ourselves. The call is to our king. This is, it's not first to a task or to our ability or to our accomplishments. Our call is to our king. But there's two things I want to remind you in closing. And the, the first is this. Scripture is very clear that we still have an enemy. The Apostle Paul writes in Ephesians 6, We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Please don't be deceived. There are forces that you can't see that are at work against your faithfulness, that are at work against your holiness, that, are against, that, are, that stand against you. You can't see them. But scripture tells us that they're just as real as anything that we can know with our senses. We have an enemy. The last thing I want, I want to leave with you is this. We have an enemy and we are enemies as well when left to ourselves. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul wrote this, that God shows his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. Left to ourselves, we are enemies. The nature of our sin is not that we're not quite enough, or that we can make mistakes now and then. The essence of sin is that left to ourselves, we stand opposed to our creator. And the response was to send the king, the king to conquer us, and who conquered us by living and then dying and then rising again. Beloved, your call is to your king. Let's pray. Father, in our stubbornness and our weakness, we want to be, we want to be in charge. I pray, I pray that you would continue to subdue our hearts, subdue our minds, subdue our lives, subdue our desires, and shape them as you would. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.